Tonight's scripture reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. One day when Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small roof chamber with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, when the time comes round, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. The word of the Lord. So this past May, I was arriving to work just before 7 a.m. in the morning and pulling into the driveway of the school where I teach. I came to a stop where I needed to turn right into the main parking lot. But straight ahead of me was the door to the convent, home to the few remaining nuns who still live on campus. And between the door and myself stood a sculpture of the visitation, Elizabeth grasping the hands of her cousin Mary and both women, old and young, are pregnant, one with John the Baptist, the other with Jesus. My eyes move to the right of the door where a second statue of Mary stands. She is pure white stone and holds in her hand a symbol of purity, a bouquet of white lilies. Just a month prior to this, I had worked with a group of my students young children five to ten years of age to create a station of the cross for House of Mercy. Our station was Jesus placed in the arms of his mother, 
the students decided to drape Mary with a garland of red felt poppies, poppies being the symbol of Christ's passion. And as I sat in my minivan, I paused, thinking that I preferred Mary better covered in red when a large black bird flew in front of my windshield. I watched as it flew the perimeter of the pond to my left and circled back towards me. And I thought, it can't be. It must be an eagle or a really big crow, but it's not that kind of bird. I hope it's not that kind of bird. But there was no denying as it flew towards me and then slowed as it passed in front of my van for a second time. The large black body, white beak, and bald fleshy red head. It was indeed a vulture. And even with my windows rolled up, I could almost hear the slow whoosh of its wings as it flew past my line of vision and then disappeared into the trees. And I thought to myself, that can't be a good sign. The scripture reading for today tells the story of Elisha, his servant Gehazi, a woman and her son. The woman is well off and established in the community. Believing Elisha to be a holy man, she offers to build him a room on her roof where he can stay when he passes through town on his travels. Elisha sends his servant to speak with her and offers to put in a good word on her behalf the next time they meet with the king or an army commander. She declines the offer saying, thank you, but I have my own connections. I can take care of myself. When Elijah hears this, he says to Gehazi, there must be something we can do for her. And Gehazi says, well, her husband is old and she has no children. So Elijah, without any word from God or any prayer or request from the woman, tells her she will be holding a son this time next year. And her response isn't necessarily joy. It might come off more as, why are you messing with me? And there are a lot of stories in the Bible of women who cannot conceive, who plead to God for a child and experience a miracle birth. But this one is different than the typical paradigm. The woman did not ask for a child. She was simply being nice to someone whom she believed to be a holy man. And when she felt and when he felt that she had the upper hand by declining his help in return, he declared that she would give birth as a reward for her faithfulness. She is barren and must want a child, right? And it strikes me as odd that this would be his blessing. Seeing as just two chapters prior, he cursed a group of children who called him Baldy. Two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 children. Elijah doesn't seem like one who is all too child-friendly, yet the woman does conceive and give birth to a son. And when we meet the child for the first time, he is not an infant, but a boy, walking out to his father, who is with the reapers in the field. The boy's head hurts, and the father tells the servant to take the child to his mother, where she holds him on her lap as he dies before the clock strikes noon. The vulture that I saw that morning after looking through my bird books, I learned was a turkey vulture. The scientific name for a turkey vulture is Cathartes aura. The first part of the name, Cathartes, 
comes from the Greek catharsis, which means to purify. The second part of the name is derived from the Latin arius, meaning golden. So the full meaning of the turkey vulture's name is golden purifier. Another source cited that aura in Greek means breeze. So you could think of the turkey vulture as a cleansing breeze. And isn't that interesting? The bird that so many of us would associate with death, decay, rot, everything we want to avoid by its very name means golden purifier, cleansing breath. The room the woman had built on the roof for Elisha is a sacred room, almost like a sanctuary in its arrangement and the way that it is furnished. Yara Amit, in his article, A Prophet Tested, writes that the attic is, quote, furnished with items that might recall God's abode. A table, reminiscent of the table of display, a chair, suggestive of God's seat, and a lamp, which was an essential sanctuary vessel, and a bed, which might recall an altar. So this room, by its design and arrangement, is meant to be entered only by the holy. So when the boy dies, the woman carries her son's limp body into the holy place and places him on the bed. She places him on the altar. She closes the door and goes to confront Elisha. So imagine the life of the Shunammite woman. She is well established, is in good standing with the community, and is well taken care of. Yes, her husband is old, and no, they have no children, but she is overall content and not in want of anything. But then Elisha comes along. She receives what she did not ask for and did not think she wanted. But once she conceived and felt the child growing inside her, she was a mother. As she gave birth, nursed the boy, and cheered as he took his first steps, she was transformed with all the love and protective ferocity of, say, a she-bear. She is now ready to fight to protect the life of her son. It is Elijah she needs to speak to now. In American mythology, there is a story of how the sun was much closer to the earth than what it is today. The sun was so close that the earth and all of creation was in danger of being consumed by its flames. The animals gathered together to plan how to move the sun further away. First, the fox volunteered to pull the sun away with its mouth, but the sun proved too hot. The fox dropped the sun and this explains why the fox's mouth is burnt black on the inside. Next, the possum attempted to pull the sun away with its tail, but again the sun was too hot. The possum failed, and this explains why it has a scorched, hairless tail. Next, the vulture stepped forward. Now, vulture was the most beautiful and powerful of all birds. Upon its head was a beautiful mantle of rich feathers that all other birds envied. Knowing that the earth would burn up unless someone moved the sun, the vulture placed its head against, against it and began to fly it to the heavens. Though it could feel its crown feathers burning, the vulture continued until the sun was set at a safe distance in the sky away from the earth. This is why today the vulture has a bald head. Although it is a misunderstood and misaligned bird, 
the vulture has always sought to sustain life. After placing her son's dead body upon the bed slash altar, the woman leaves her house and sets off to find Elisha at Mount Carmel, of all places. Mount Carmel, where Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal. That can't be a good sign. Elisha sees her coming from a distance and sends Gehazi to see what is wrong. The woman dismisses Gehazi. It is Elijah she has come to see. When she sees Elijah, she takes hold of his feet and is pushed back by Gehazi, but Elijah allows her to speak. The woman, still holding on to Elijah's feet, says, Did I ask you for a son? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elijah's response is not to go see the boy himself, but to send Gehazi with Elijah's staff to heal the, bot, to heal the boy. The woman is not satisfied with this, and she tells Elijah she will not leave without him. Elijah agrees to walk with the woman, but sends Gehazi ahead. When Gehazi reaches the upper room, he places Elijah's staff on the boy's face, but it has no effect on the boy's condition. Soon after, Elijah arrives at the house, closes the door on the woman and the servant. He is alone in the upper room with the corpse of the boy on the bed slash altar. Elijah prays to the Lord. This is the first time in the whole story where God is addressed or even mentioned. Elijah prays and places his body on top of the corpse, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hand. The body begins to warm. Elijah turns away, walks around the room, and then lays his body on top of the corpse once more. The boy sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. I am not sure what the sneeze means, but he did it seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha opens the door, tells the woman to take up her son. She falls to the ground and then picks up her son and leaves. Vultures have very weak feet. Their feet are more suitable for walking than for killing. And of all the raptors, the vulture is the only species that does not eat its own kind. Vultures do not eat other birds. Eagles do, owls do, hawks do. All other birds created in the same image as a vulture kill their own kind. Vultures do not. In fact, vultures do not kill at all. They feed on that which is already dead and by doing so rid the environment of disease and bacteria and allow the living to simply live. Your little dog or cat can run outside without fear of being snatched up by the talons of a vulture. There are no stories of vultures carrying off small children. Vultures simply allow the living to live and rid the dead of the disease that could prevent life from continuing. Some commentators of this text write that the scene of Elijah and the woman from Shunem is meant not to be a simple hero story illustrating Elijah's great power and miraculous deeds as a prophet. They write that it is actually an example of a development story where the prophet is cut down to size. The scene of the dead boy teaches Elijah that his power comes from God and not from himself. 
And I like the idea of God teaching prophet, a prophet humility, but I can't seem to get comfortable with the idea that this lesson is taught at the sake of the life of a mother's son. It seems to me that the lesson learned by Elijah is periphery. The main characters, although they remain nameless throughout the story, are the mother and the son and how God encircles the two. Four chapters later, Elisha tells the woman to go away from the land for there will be a famine for seven years. But the woman takes her family to live in the land of the Philistines, or the, the woman takes her family to live in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And when she returns, she goes to the king to beg for her land to be returned. During her absence, either the land was occupied by squatters or became property of the king. It so happened that just before she approached the king, Gehazi, now working for the king and not for Elijah, was telling the king of all the great deeds of Elijah and how Elijah restored life to the dead. No mention of the prayer to God. But that was enough for the king, and when he saw the woman approach with the very son restored from the dead still living, the king returned the land to the woman as well as repaid all the income acquired from the land during her absence. The woman and her son return home. I think it's kind of a bizarre story. It barely has anything to do with God, yet God is there throughout, circling among the living the whole time. And perhaps God gets a bad rap as a result of the company God keeps. Prophets are seedy characters, as are kings and army commanders, as are we all. But once the disease is consumed, all the anger and revenge and killing subsides. Once the flames of death that risk consuming us all are removed, what are we left with? We are left with a mother holding her baby boy, returning home restored. We are left with resurrection. The opening reading today came from a poem that I think is really lovely and I would like to end the sermon today by reading it in its entirety. Under the Vulture Tree by David Bottoms. We have all seen them circling pastures, have looked up from the mouth of a barn, a pine clearing, the fences of our own backyards, and have stood amazed by the one slow wing beat, the endless dihedral drift. But I had never seen so many so close hundreds, every limb of the dead oak feathered black. And I cut the engine, let the river grab the john boat and pull it toward the tree. The black leaves shined, the pink fruit blossomed red, ugly as a human heart. Then as I passed under their dream, I saw for the first time its soft countenance, the raw, fleshy jowls, wrinkled and generous, like the faces of the very old who have grown to empathize with everything. And I drifted away from them, slow, on the pull of the river, reluctant, looking back at their roost, calling them what I had never called them, what they are, those dwarfed, transfiguring angels who flock to the side of the poisoned fox, the mud turtles crushed on the shoulder of the road, 
who pray over the leaf graves of the anonymous lost with mercy enough to consume us all and give us wings.